Bienvenido and thank you for listening to the Word con Sazón podcast, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos. The following sermon was given at the Reformed Church of Los Angeles in the city of Linwood, California by Pastor Chris Marquez. For more information about the church or the pastors, please go to our show notes. My sermon title this morning is The Cure for Anxiety. The Cure for Anxiety. And that's Matthew 6, 25 through 34 from the book that we love. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 25 says, For this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. And heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, God, to give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for this Lord's day. We thank you for uh, the songs of worship. We thank you that they remind us of the truth, that you truly are a mighty fortress who guards and protects us. Father, we, at this time, ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Would your spirit be amongst us in our midst to be our teacher, to illuminate our minds and inflame our hearts with the love of Christ and the truth about him, that we might go out and more accurately serve him. And Father, I we do pray for all the injustices in the world that are taking place right now, so much chaos, but we thank you, God, that you are restoring all things, and one day, God, you will do away with all pain and suffering. And Father, I pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my own heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that you would forgive me, God, for my own imperfections and this most holy task of preaching thy word. I thank you for the privilege. I pray that you would give me unction to preach it. And most of all, God, I thank you for him in whose name I come. And all God's people said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Someone once said, anxiety is the rust of life, destroying its brightness and weakening its power. A childlike and abiding trust in providence is its best preventative and cure. 
Now today we're going to look at how to prevent and cure anxiety. Now I praise God that you made it here this afternoon because I believe that what Jesus has to say to us in this section is extremely important and powerful. And I truly believe that Satan is angry that you made it here this morning. He probably tried everything and anything to keep you from coming, but yet you are here. Especially for those of you who suffer with anxiety. It's been well said that we suffer in isolation, but we heal in community. And if you're going through hell right now, the hell of anxiety, there's no better place for you to be because you are not in this alone. We suffer together, we heal together, and let the church say amen. Now, I am not a psychiatrist, but I believe that I have authority to speak on this subject for two reasons. One, the Bible gives me authority, and the second is that I struggle with anxiety. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a nervous person. But my struggle with anxiety began a few years back, and the catalyst for that was caffeine. Now, I have a very extreme personality, and that means that when I get into something, I don't know how to do it moderately. I have to go all in, I get obsessed, I get addicted, and I become very passionate about it. And so when I began drinking caffeine, when I uh, started working as a, as a high school teacher, I began to drink ungodly amounts of it. Just to give you an idea, I used to teach out in the East San Gabriel Valley, and it would take me about an hour to get to work every day because of traffic. Now, in the morning, I would prepare uh, two thermos, about this big, uh, and I would put about three scoops of, of, of coffee in each thermo, so a total of like six scoops. And because I would take a while to get to work, I would down both of them before I even got to work. Then, when I would arrive, before I would park, I would go to the liquor store next to the high school, and I would buy two Monster Energy drinks, and I would down both of those throughout the workday. Then when I would get home, I would take a pre-workout before I would lift weights, several scoops of it. And then when I was done, I would make myself another large cup of coffee to sit down and read theological books. This resulted in me being at a Bible study at our old church and having a conversation with a gentleman and while I was having this conversation with this gentleman, I began to feel my face twitch. Now, I've had an eye twitch before. I've felt my lip twitch before. But this was my face. The entire face felt like it was twitching. It felt like it was going crazy. And I was just waiting for the gentleman to look at me and say, hey, what's wrong with your face? But he wasn't, he didn't, he didn't say anything. So I thought that was a little bit strange. Uh, the man was a little bit strange, so maybe that's why he didn't say anything. But then I, then I, I went to the, the restroom, however, and I looked in the mirror, and it was still doing that, but nothing was happening. Nothing was moving. Nothing was twitching. So I said, okay, this is strange. After that, the, the days, weeks, and months went on, and I began to have several uh, episodes of, of anxiety attacks. Horrible. And then fast forward a couple uh, years when we had already planted this church, I got worse, and I was forced to drop some classes uh, in, in seminary, and I was actually uh, eventually uh, forced to take some time off from here. Uh, you might remember uh, early last year around springtime, I didn't preach for like maybe two or three months. During that time, I was battling a whole host of mental illnesses, including clinical anxiety and a bit of depression. I was seeing a psychiatrist, 
doing therapy. They tried every single drug imaginable, the strongest ones there are, and nothing worked. I eventually was forced to undergo a three-month treatment that they call ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. This is the final straw for any mental illness. They only do ECT for the worst cases out there, and mine was as bad as it gets. ECT is a process where you go once a week, and they put you under anesthesia, you go under, and then they hook your brain up to a machine that causes your brain to have a bunch of seizures. When you do this, you can't even drive for the entire three months while you're doing it. And you lose all your memory from those three months. I can't remember anything from that time period. I thought I was done. I thought I was going to lose my mind and end up in a psych ward. But God had other plans for me. I've since recovered from that, and I'm about 90% better, but still struggle with it a bit. There's a reason why I share this. I hate talking about myself, and I always try to keep myself out of my own sermons. But I want you all to know that it's okay to talk about your struggles. Too many people who suffer with anxiety are embarrassed to talk about it because they think people are going to look at them differently. People are afraid of being pegged as the person with mental health issues. However, you'd be surprised at how many people struggle with it. You're not alone. Now, when it comes to being a Christian with anxiety, there's something very important that you need to know. And that is that the devil loves you. Why? Because you are open game for him. The Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for somebody to, to mess up somebody to destroy, a life to crumble. And believe me, the choice between you and somebody who doesn't suffer from anxiety, the choice is easy. It's you, your low-hanging fruit. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the role of the devil because some Christians blame everything on the devil. I mean, they just everything is the devil. I'm going to try and do my best white girl impersonation. Oh, my God. I'm under attack. My iPhone got lost. Or dude say, I'm under attack by by the enemy. I lost my job. You're not under attack. You were just underperforming and you got fired. Now, you might not think that this message is for you. You may not say, I don't have anxiety. Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, you do. Do you worry about money? Do you worry about paying bills? Do you worry about your job? then guess what? You have anxiety. That's what anxiety is. It may not be clinical anxiety like I had, but you are anxious about things. And unlike uh, clinical anxiety, your type of anxiety is actually sin. So you probably need this more than I do. Now, this message from Jesus here was specifically aimed at the poor and working class. The day laborers, they were called in that day. They would wake up in the morning and they would look for work, and then they would get paid at the, each, at the end of each day. Uh, you might remember the, the, the parable where Jesus speaks of the day laborers, where they work for one denarii at, at the end of the day, and so on and so forth. Now, these men were not guaranteed work, and therefore had no financial security. If they didn't get work that day, their family wasn't eating dinner. It was that simple. And it is within this context to these people that Jesus expects them to live free from worry. And now I truly believe that this text provides the cure for anxiety. 
both how to prevent it and how to cure it. And so what I want to teach this morning, my main proposition is this. Unless you focus on the road to righteousness, you will end up in a dead-end street. All other roads lead to anxiety. They won't lead to fulfillment. They don't lead you to where you think they lead. And now I have three points in order to prove that. And the first is I want to talk about the principle about anxiety with examples. Then I want to talk about the foolishness of anxiety. And then lastly, I want to give you the cure for anxiety. Point number one, the principle about anxiety with examples. This is going to be verses 25 through 30. I'll read them once again. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, before we get to the root of the problem and its cure, we will first break down the whole of the matter. What we want to examine here is that you are not in control. God is, and you need to trust that. Psalms 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4.6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your heart let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will give you peace even when you don't even know the solution. 1 Peter 5.7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Job tells us that who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? Likewise, Psalm 147, 8 through 9 says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Now, these verses bring to our attention two very important biblical doctrines that every single Christian should not only be familiar with, but they should have deeply ingrained inside of them. The first one is the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything, even our lives. The second is God's providence, that God not only creates, but he provides what his creation needs. We are not only a part of that creation, but we are the crown of his creation. And so if he provides everything for the lesser things, how much more will he not provide for us? We are all susceptible to worry, and worry is dangerous, very dangerous. So we need to help one another with our worries before it's too late. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, in this 
section, Jesus is forcing you and I to make a decision. Will you put your trust, you either have to put your trust in God or in mammon. Mammon represents money, food, and material things. What he's not saying is don't put food on the table. He's saying get your priorities straight. Don't let these things take first place in your hearts and minds or occupy all of your time. There are two very important things that we need to address in light of this. The first is our habits. Success in any area involves getting rid of bad habits and replacing them with good habits. Worrying or being anxious is a bad habit and they are sin. And we are to stop doing this and replace it with trust in God. The second thing is distractions. We can't allow the cares of this world to distract us from the things of God. When they do distract us from them, we are in sin. If you turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we have here the story of Mary and Martha in verses 38 through 42. So in Luke 10, beginning at verse 38, it says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her it's not that these the things of life the cares of life are not important it's that they are of far lesser importance than the far greater things which are the things of god we are to avoid being anxious about these things because it is unreasonable think about it has worrying ever paid your bills no god can does god lie no now, where Jesus was ministering here, the area of Palestine, where he was at, was full of many types of birds. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes many of them, including in the parables of Jesus. There's even been a number of books written on the birds of the Bible and their theological significance. So the people of that day would have been very familiar with the birds and how they live, so it served for a perfect illustration to them. Now, Jesus here is not advocating for laziness, which is also a sin. Birds don't just sit on the branches with their mouths open wide, waiting for food to fall from the sky. They actively seek their prey and they train their young ones to do the same. What we are to imitate from the birds is their carefree attitude. I've never known a bird with an ulcer. Birds don't worry and neither should we. Now, this example must have frustrated many of the people listening. Why do I say that? Think about it. Just imagine that you come to Jesus and you tell him something like this. Lord, I lost my job. My wife two times me. My kids don't respect me. The rent was due last week and now I'm being evicted. The car won't start, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus' response is, look at the birds. What? I don't want to look at no dumb birds. Didn't you just hear what I said? 
or he heard, and his answer may not be what you want to hear, it is nonetheless the perfect answer and the solution to the problem. Trust in the Lord and he will provide. You can't worry yourself into a longer life, but you can worry yourself to death. The flowers of the field, the mountains, and all of nature is what we would call pristine beauty. There is nothing more beautiful in the world than what God has made. In that area of Galilee, there are many types of beautiful flowers. There are blue irises, there are red and purple uh, anemones that grow wild. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is that if God paints insignificant, inanimate objects like flowers with the highest beauty, don't you think that he will at the very least give you, who matters much more to him, the ordinary, basic things of life? In all these examples that Jesus gives, he is using an argument that is called the lesser to the greater. And it was commonly used by rabbis in those days. And basically the argument is like this. If God provides the greatest things to these lesser things, imagine what he will give you. Paul uses the same argument in Romans when he says that if while we were God's enemies, God gave us his best, his son, imagine what he will give us now as children. The fact that they did not realize this causes Jesus to call them men of little faith. They fail to take to heart God's presence, God's promises, and God's power in their lives. Now, the Greek term here used for uh, care or worry or anxiety, however your Bible translates it, is merim now, okay? And that, that uh, Greek word is used in the Bible for two different things. It is either used uh, to speak of uh, the care for the Lord's work and his people, or care for the things of life. Jesus here is addressing the latter, and he is basically saying that your worry is wrong when it is misdirected. Let me push the issue a bit further. If we're completely honest, the real problem here is not that God is not providing your needs, it's that God is not providing your wants. Most of our complaints are not that we don't have food in the fridge, but what kind of food we have in the fridge? Lord, I don't want tuna. We're not complaining about being naked, but instead that the clothes on your back are not the latest fashion. Now, Jesus' Jesus's point is not to give you a hard time. What he's trying to do is get you to relax. And if you will listen, you will. Worry is like being a rat on a wheel. It spins around, it can run as hard as it wants, but it's not going nowhere. And eventually, it will burn out. In the same way, you need to get off that wheel of worry because it's going nowhere and you need to start putting your faith and trust in God. Are you trusting God or materialism? You are under God's care. You need to believe that. So cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Stop focusing on getting and start focusing on what God is giving. Now, my second point is the foolishness of anxiety. And this is verses 31 through 32. I'll read them again. It says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, based on everything that we have just looked at, we can only come to one conclusion. Worrying is foolish. It does nothing good. 
It only does bad. To continue in the habit of worry is foolish because it's not only bad, but it will get worse. There are different levels to anxiety. And the more you feed it, it only grows bigger. Regular anxiety will quickly become clinical anxiety if you let it. Then you got to get on drugs and it's all bad from there. And drugs don't cure anxiety. Don't be fooled. They just mask the symptoms. Even a psychiatrist will tell you if you want to get better, you got to change your mindset. And there are even more consequences to this. It doesn't stop there. Allow me to add four more. The next consequence is going to be enslavement. We see this all the time. People who want to live the luxurious life that only concern themselves with money, they need to devote themselves to ungodly amounts of work in order to maintain that lifestyle. And all that work leads to problems in the home, in their marriage, and all of that causes more stress, which leads to more anxiety. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The point is, if you live for material wealth, you will pay a high price. The next consequence is devaluation. When you value money more than God, it actually cheapens your life rather than enriching it. Why? Because it promises security, but it never delivers. Only God brings security. The third is a bad testimony. Do you know how bad it looks every time you complain to people about your financial situation when things are going good? And on the other hand, do you know how great of a testimony it is when through the financial difficulties, you continue to have joy and praise God? That attracts people. And the fourth is loss of joy. Worry does not pay your bills, but it will rob you of joy. Worry is very costly. There's nothing wrong with saving up for a rainy day, but don't let worry rain on your parade. The point is we can possess nice things, but nice things cannot possess you. Non-believers don't know God or how he works, and that's why they worry. Us, on the other hand, we do know, and so we shouldn't be sharing in their misery. Charles Spurgeon once said, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it only empties today of its strength. Knowing all, of this is, uh, knowing all of this, why would you ever worry about anything? It's foolish. It does nothing but make you miserable. It doesn't help at all. Are you worried about something right now? Job, work, money, school, grades. You need to stop worrying about it. It's not going to do nothing for you. It's foolish. God's got you. Focus on him, and he will provide for all of your needs. Stop focusing on getting and start focusing on what God is giving. My third and final point is the cure for anxiety. The cure for anxiety. This is verses 33 through 34. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what precisely cures anxiety? It's simple. Focus on God, his provision, and his kingdom, and he will look out for you in such a way that you will never need to worry about anything ever again. Acknowledging him in everything you do, and he will take care of you. 
Put God first in your finances, giving to him what belongs to him and not just your leftovers. Put him first in your home, at school, and he's got you. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. He isn't saying don't work for tomorrow. He's saying don't worry about tomorrow. This is the climactic point of his message. When you take your eyes off God and instead put them on your problems, you will suffer from anxiety. And now before I close with some practical tips, I want to make sure you've understood what I've said. The best way I can do that is to keep you from two opposite extremes. And in order to do that, I'm going to quote one of the most influential theologians of our day, bumper stickers. The first bumper sticker says, you can't take it with you. Some people are so against material wealth because they say you can't take it when you die anyway. That They say, I've never seen a U-Haul following a hearst, but wealth is not evil. And being poor doesn't make you more godly. Have a healthy relationship with money. Don't idolize it, but also, but also don't despise it. We need it. The second bumper sticker is the other extreme. He who dies with the most toys wins. Really? I once knew a dude who wanted to acquire the best things in life. He wanted a trophy wife. He got her. He wanted a mansion. He got it. Accumulated all the wealth he wanted, and a year later, he died. Then the wife remarried, inherited all his wealth, and now another man is sleeping in his bed. I know that's kind of scandalous, but it's the truth, and I hope it puts things in perspective. Now, application. I have some spiritual application and some uh, physical application. And now, Father, we... Just pray for each and every single individual here, God, that may be struggling with anxiety and doesn't know what to do. I pray, Lord, that your word would guide them, and that they would seek help, and that they would be healed. We thank you for all things. We pray this thing in your son's name. Amen.